to still be God. So he said, I'm going to reserve some things just for me. Those are incommunicable attributes. You can't do them like Jesus, right? You can't be omnipresent. You're not all powerful. You can't be everywhere. And God is like, cool, because I'm the only God, right? But he says, but there's some things I want you to do like me because I want people to know that you're created in my image. And I want them to understand when they think about the holy God, I want them to get a glimpse of the holy God when they see a holy you. You follow that? So they see a holy you and they go, oh, that's how God acts. We, we've had that happen practically, right? You, you know, your friends out there, they're wild and out and they see you not getting drunk, right? They see you being faithful to your spouse, right? They see you not wronging people because they wronged you. And they go, they go well, I don't get it. This is a doggy dog world. Why aren't you getting that person back for what they did to you? And you go, actually, because I love Jesus. And I realize I look at Ephesians 2, he's rich in mercy, and so I'm just trying to learn how to be rich in mercy too. And they're like, what? <laughs> right? Right? Have you had, you had those moments? I'm proposing to you as we worship God and walk with Jesus, you should have those moments. Where you show God's character and it's very different than the world because the world's character hates God. But the world sees that and goes, who is your God? Right? So the moral law actually is, is the communicable attributes we get to tell. So we can't do those other things beyond the present, but we can love like God loves. Although broken, although not as potent and beautiful, he allows us to love. He allows us to be compassionate. He allows us to be just, right? And when we're doing those things, you're in our community, we're neighboring here, we're, you know, and we, we're, we're fighting for people's justice. People are being unjust and we come and we fight for them, Right? You know, and so you're, you're, you're standing up for people and you're doing those things. Though you just, at those moments, you're telling people who God is. And that's why it's important for your evangelism to have words. Because if it's just about you, people think you just just. But it ain't about just you. <laughs> See? And in our flesh, we want that. Yeah, I am just. <laughs> right? But it ain't about that. It's about them going, why are you just? Actually, I'm actually in the flesh, man, I'm not just. I try to get people all the time. But actually, see, if we're honest, right, we will get you, right? I will play you, right? I'll be looking out for mine. But in the spirit, I act like God. And I want what's right. I want what's right for God. And then we tell people that. All right. So because I went off for a little bit, let me, let me show you what the question was so you know that I answered it. Right. So the question was, how... Like, how in the world can we kind of pick and choose? And what I'm trying to propose to the family of God is, is that we get it right, we get it wrong sometimes in nuanced areas. But in big picture areas, guys, we're not picking and choosing. The Bible is really clear. And as you do biblical theology, I'll bring it up again. What you're doing is you're looking at books that are, that are books in themselves, but the books are part of bigger picture books. And then those books are part of a bigger picture, the canon. And so it's very naive to think that when, you're, that when someone says something in Genesis or whatever, that they're just saying it in Genesis. What we're saying is that I've looked at Genesis, I'm looking at the Bible, and I'm kind of doing theology back and forth. That's good biblical theology. Theology is the study of God. You have to, you're reading in Genesis, but then you're reading the Council of God and you're seeing how God is interacting throughout the story of the Bible and all of that is what it takes in order to come up with a theological treaty as it were. And so I want to propose that people aren't picking and choosing and kind of picking on people who desire to practice uh, homosexual relations. You notice we're not having this conference about murder. You know, we're not having this discussion you know, about, you know, coveting. (laughs) You know, we're not picking and choosing. Just as it's clear 
that those are, those are moral sins. They dishonor God because that's not who God is. In the same way, God has been really clear. And the area of homosexuality is a moral issue that God is saying, I don't act like that, so neither should you. Right? And then finally, like I want to make sure, I want you, don't you hear this and then hear our talk a couple weeks ago. Go back and listen to our talk. We don't focus on the act as much. We focus on the issue that we're all broken. I believe we went to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we talk about the issue of we're all broken, and, man, we all have to fight the fight of being holy before God. And, and that's really, and that the issue, the goal of our brothers and sisters who are homosexual is not to be heterosexual. The goal is holiness. Let me make that really clear. That if you're a Christian and your whole goal is, well, how do I make you straight? You missed it. Right? I mean, that'd be cool if God gives them that supernatural deal where they're just like, I don't even, I don't even think like that no more. But that's not the goal. The goal is whatever our issue is that dishonors God is for us to be willing to not do that so we can honor God in the spirit. That's the goal of Christian life. When God sees people who in their flesh would dishonor him, they, 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 they go and they, they, they even shake sometimes and they, they're hard and they're, they're, they're breaking in their heart and it's like hard in their whole life. But yet they say, I want to love Jesus. And he's like, man, look how, look at my brother, look at my sister, look at my, look at my children choosing me when they want in their flesh to choose something else. That honors Christ. So that was the uh, first question. Is, is I want to say we're not picking and choosing. We do get it right and wrong. But in the big picture areas, I think we're doing okay. And in that area, I clearly think we're doing okay. Um, is that clear? That was a lot. Uh, yeah, J- Justin. Yeah, good question. So he's asking, what makes, how do we drop, how, how do we say that second, that first Timothy, uh, in this passage, in this passage here where he's talking about submissiveness or head coverings and Corinthians or things like that, how are you making that cultural versus a moral law, right? Well, so again, I, I don't know how else to say it, but like really to say, uh, to look in the Bible and to see, and this is what you got to do, you got to do, you got to do your theology, right? To see women, clearly, I've, I've shown my case in other talks, to see women being uh, placed in, in, in places of honor uh, from Jesus, actually. Uh, to see them having, as it were, you know, they, they didn't have titles, but to seeing women uh, who were kind of disdained and kind of treated as inferior throughout, uh, throughout his, uh, ancient history. And then to see the Bible saying something different where you see, you know, remnants here and there of women uh, having a, a say and being treated as valuable. Why? Because Genesis says that men, men and women were created with value, purpose, and worth. That they're created in, in the same exact essence, which means women are no less inferior, but we're both beautiful in God's sight, right? There's no one higher or lower. So, we, so, so I'm doing theology now, right? To see that in Genesis, to see God making that clear, to see culture decreated a little bit, but to see in Genesis what I would propose, there is a role distinction. And then you come to New Testament and you see Jesus continues to affirm what the scriptures say about women in the, New, in the Old Testament, that they have value and worth. Why? Because we see Jesus putting them in places that you would never see happen uh, in the first century. In fact, again, the lady, the head accountant, you know, was a lady, you know, keeping the books, things of that sort. And to see all those, see the ladies finding Jesus at the tomb, all those kind of things were just inexplicable. They were like almost stupid. 
uh, from the mindset of a first century Jew, to see those things happen and then to go through the New Testament and to see women being deacons and things of that sort, but yet to not see what I want to get to the leadership piece, but I would say not to see them being the heads. When, I do, when you do that theology, you come here, it wouldn't make, I don't understand how we would even make a conclusion that a woman speaking is a moral issue. Moral. When you say moral, we're talking... Kid, you know, um, idolatry, loving your neighbor, oppressing people, stealing, sexual sins. I mean, so we have to define moral, by the way, too. And I think if we're doing those things, we're defining what moral is, right? And we see this reality or uh, based on God's character. I don't know how a woman speaking kind of just avoid, not like not doing it in an evil way, which I'm proposing is this piece. He's saying, don't, don't. You shouldn't be, you know, being usurping authority and things of that sort. But a woman speaking, it doesn't reflect immorality from who God is. It doesn't help us not understand God's character. I know how else to say it because I think at some point you you can argue some points, but some points I just got to be like, yeah, that's just, <laughs> yeah, just women speaking. A woman using her voice doesn't doesn't thwart who God is, right? And I don't know how else to say that. And then we just have to agree on that. I mean, I think that's plain, but it just makes sense. So, so, that, that, so I would say you do that kind of homework and you realize, okay, so what's going on here? And then you got to do more work to say, okay, so what was going on that day? When you understand the first century, the way that people, we, women were treated, what was going on that day, maybe what the reason was behind him saying those things, I think you have to come to, I mean, you can come to another conclusion, but to me, I think the burden of proof is on the other conclusions. It seems that there's some sense of cultural components that's going on here, considering the mindset of a first century Jew. So, and that could be debated. There's people who can say something different, but I, but I, I guess, I guess I, I wanted all of us to kind of take that, that role of saying at some point we have to say, yeah, that just makes sense. That's, I would propose women speaking isn't a moral issue. A hat, someone wearing a hat, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, necessarily, it, because it changed, you don't see God, that's not as a reflect God's character. You know what I'm saying? So it's messy. I'm not going to make it like it's easy, uh, but I think there's a lot of biblical precedence behind my point. I hope that helps a little bit. So I just, yeah. Any other questions? Josh? Ah, uh, uh, that's really good. That's really good. So, so, so to, well, I, mean, I want to take what you said. I think it's really good and actually push it on Justin's point a little bit even more. So what, jo- what Josh is saying, Josh is saying, well, and as you think about it, you don't see... Uh, when you look at the passages that talk about moral distinctions and God saying, hey, these immoral things, these people who are practicing these immoral things, as it were, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, for example. Or you see that, you know, you see that throughout scriptures in different ways. You don't see, you, you, you can, you'll see homosexuality being part of that list. You don't see women talking, right? Women talking, drunkenness, and prostitutes will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You, you know what I'm saying? You don't see that list. You see the moral list and you get a sense of like, this is what morality is. And then I, I wish I would have had a, and this is my fault, I wish I would have had the definition clearly. I don't want to speak out of turn of what morality is. It would be very helpful. But I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's just good theology again saying, well, well, this is part of a list that seems to be a moral list. There is no moral list for head covering. Like you don't see 
you know, drunkenness, adultery, head coverings. You know, you don't see that. And so I propose the reason why is because that's not a moral issue, um, as it were. Is that, did I get your, is that what you were trying to say? Which I think that's really good theology. And I, to me, I think that's really good theology. It makes sense to me. Um, all right, just a second time to go to mine. I'm going to have Pastor Leon come up. Um, some of us are weary of creating rules from Genesis. Uh, rules about marriage, gender roles, homosexuality, what glorifies God, and so forth. So what type of book is Genesis, and what can we conclude from it? Is it safe to build arguments from implications in Genesis uh, 1 through 3? Um, so I think I've already shared, talked about this actually a little bit through our last discussion about how to do theology. Um, but, but what, I, what, I, what I want to focus on here is, uh, well, first, we understand this question here is that, like, can I, can I actually go to Genesis and say, hey, you know, it says here, you know, this is where the first marriage is. And can I get, can I get doctrine, as it were, out of the book of Genesis? When can I say God is saying this here and we need to obey it, basically? Um, which is, uh, I, I would say, key word again is build. I think she, yeah, it is safe to build arguments. <laughs> But I, I say that because personally, you should be able, you you can get arguments from Genesis one through three. Let me just express real quick what you have, and and we we studied the book of Genesis, so I want to ask you to go back and listen to those talks uh, and understand like how we look at the framework of Genesis one through three, and also Genesis one through eleven, and then also Genesis twelve through fifty, because what you have is you have a beautiful picture of God trying to let you understand basically one through three that God created. Period. God created. God made it all. God did it all. All is for the glory of God. And then he retells the story again um, and helps us see that now I'm going to zero in um, from 1 through 11 on, um, on the whole concept of the fall. And also kind of proving and showing the depravity of man and, and, and the state of what man is in. Right? And then he's going to, so then we see that and we see <clears throat> This man being crazy and we're seeing generations, as it were, happening uh, in Genesis. And so it's a primeval, a primeval history book, as it were. And then you go through uh, Genesis 12 through 50. And what God does, he says, I'm going to zero in even more. And I want to focus in on a particular family within the brokenness of humanity to kind of make my point again of what God is doing in the world. And so now God focuses on this family who actually is built up to be now the people of God. Okay? So that's what's going on in Genesis as a whole. But you got to keep in mind again, you can read Genesis by itself because it is the book of Genesis, but also Genesis is part of what they call the Pentateuch. It's part of a five-book series, right? And then that five-book series is part of the canon, the whole, the, the, the Bible. And so what you have happening here is you, again, you're reading Genesis where it is, and you're also reading the Pentateuch, and you're seeing what God is saying, and is it reaffirmed from Genesis in the Pentateuch, and is it reaffirmed in those areas from when you're reading the rest of the Bible? And so that's how you have to do healthy, systematic theology, which is what my, my friend is saying here. When you do all of that, yes, you can actually build a case from different theological stimulus, different frameworks in the book of Genesis, because you see those, those, those cases and those doctrines that you're talking about being retold all throughout the Bible. Does that make sense? You have to take time. You have to look at what's happening in, in Genesis, in that particular place, which you want to say is a doctrine. And then you want to go through the scriptures and make sure uh, that is key. And so here, for example, if we're talking about the issue 
of gender roles, we did that. That's what we tried to do. We tried to say, here's what it seems to be happening in Genesis. Here's what it seems to be happening throughout history. Here's what seems to be happening in culture. And now we take that, we interpret it from here's what's happening in the Bible. Here's what's happening in the culture in the Bible. And then we bounce around and then we find it. When we look at all of that, then we make a consistency of like, hey, here's what it seems like the Bible is teaching. So um, I hope that's helpful that you can uh, that it's a big history book about generations, and there are implications that you can get out of one through three. Uh, it's a history of what God's people are doing, a history of what God has done in the world. Then it, it ratchets down to a history of God, of the people that he's created. Then it ratchets down more to the history of the people he's created and the people he's chosen to be his people. So out of that, you can uh, actually get theology if you're doing the hard work. All right, I think I have one more, right? First Peter 3, 1 through 7. Oh, look at this one. What is meant when the Apostle Peter refers to women as the weaker vessel? Okay. I saw a lot of smirks on some of the... Okay. Um, actually, I... You know what? I think... You know, so I want to apologize to you. Because I believe that my initial thinking on this concept, I've actually changed my view. Um, so, so basically... When I looked, at the, I looked at the text, I did some studying. I was talking to a sister. We were talking for a while. So I went back. I started studying it more. I was like, man, I just want to make sure I'm feeling comfortable with, you know, with what I'm saying. And, and, I, and I, man, I just feel like God was just graciously guiding me to what I believe is a more biblical framework and a better explanation, which I'm more comfortable with. Uh, when you look at the passage, look at the context. The context is one in which where he's talking about um, what it's like for women to be godly, and then he brings up the men at the end of the passage. And then you think, and then I begin to think of, and, and I was looking at obviously some awesome biblical writers, and so I didn't come up with this by myself. But it seems to be another consensus that actually what he's talking about when he says weaker, he's talking about understanding the culture that they were in, which I get that for sure. And that he was talking about uh, basically women kind of, basically the man taking care of, protecting and serving and honoring the wife, the lady, Right, and treating her good. He says, basically, if you're not treating her good, as it were, your prayers will be hindered. Right? Well, in that passage, you know what? It seems to be more, more uh, palatable to me is that he's saying in that day and age, women was treated bad sexually by men, even in marriage, big time, uh, through, 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 uh, through sexual abuse, even rape, uh, also uh, battering, so beating, beating women up, right? Um, in addition, you could do anything you wanted to a, young, to a lady in those times. You can divorce without any issue. Uh, you could just treat them just horribly. And so I actually believe that this passage is actually talking about the ontological weakness and the cultural weakness that was apparent in women in that time. And that was basically a man. We are usually, unless you like, you know, busting it out at you know, L.A. Time Fitness or whatever, you know, and doing your thing, uh, usually bigger and stronger. But also in this time, uh, and, and even now, uh, men, not as much, are, are stronger socially in a lot of areas. And so can manipulate and do things to women in all those different ways that I just described for the sake of the young people here. And he was saying to men, you need to be very careful and be a steward of the woman that I'm asking you to protect, serve, and, and care for and lead in a way that honors God and not do all those other things that I just mentioned because if you do those things to my woman, then your prayers won't be answered. To me, that makes a lot more sense. 
Um, does that make sense what I'm saying at least? Probably you can disagree, but, it, but does it make sense what I'm saying? Okay. Kyle? Come on, buddy. Oh, I think it's exactly what it means. I, think that, I just think you said it better than me. <laughs> yep. I think that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying this is how you're supposed to, you're supposed to treat this woman as more delicate and more beautiful and precious. And you're not supposed to be doing the things that, you, that normally were totally okay uh, in that time. And that sadly, even people, even brothers think they can do today to this woman because that's not what it's about. It's about treating her in that kind of way as a jewel. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I was saying, too. I hope you. So that makes me sad. That makes me sad that you thought you should bring up another way that it meant. I'm like, that's actually what I meant. So maybe I didn't explain myself well. But y'all heard. So what Kyle said is what I'm saying. So, uh, Lee. Thanks, buddy. So um, I was blessed to teach on the topic of, uh, of us being one in Christ, Jesus being our peace. And one of the things that seeks to break apart that piece is an issue of racism. And so uh, a sister uh, sent a, um, I'm pulling up the email now to read it to you guys, uh, the question, um, which is, uh, so often whenever this topic is brought up, the passages about separation of Gentiles and Jews not being applicable anymore are used, which I think is done rightly so. However, my question is regarding the Old Testament's uses of separation. So clearly the Jim Crow laws in America were wrong, separating white and black people. But in the Old Testament, oftentimes Jews and Gentiles were separated by law, God's law. I don't see how that is not perpetuating the same issues of separating two people groups that are both broken and sinful. But the separation makes it seem like one group is better than the other. It is my understanding that this was to keep them separate, uh, God's people, holy and set apart. But I guess I don't really understand why that was a good idea. Clearly, it was God's law, so I'm sure he's right. I just don't understand why it was a good thing to separate oneself from all Gentiles. Like what, uh, what about people who believed in God but were not Jewish by birth? Were they not allowed to be in community with the Jewish people? How did this not perpetuate the same better than issues? Great question. So uh, I want to first kind of backtrack a little bit. Because we know when God created humans, uh, he created us to reflect his image and with a beautiful harmony. See, sin enters the picture and disrupts the peace that we talked about last week. So initially, there was a peace among us all. Okay, sin enters the picture and now that peace is disrupted between you and I as we look at cultures. And so we see God set apart a people for his purposes. But even in the the, the first promises that we receive in Genesis chapter 12, we get Abraham being a blessing just to himself. No, trying to see if y'all listen, if that heat is messing with you. I'm trying to see if y'all paying attention or if you're sleeping right now. See, he's not called to be just a blessing unto himself, but he's going to be a blessing unto who? The nations, all people, okay? So this is a starting point, but it's not an ending point. They were set apart so that people would get a chance to experience a beautiful and holy God, 
Okay, so that question of should people, uh, would they have a chance to be engrafted into the body of Christ, into the the beautiful uh, love of who God is, if they were not Jews, of course. Of course, that was the design. And and the Lord instituted through Abraham uh, a, a way in which people would be able to experience that. Let's fast forward into the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah... It says this, and I'm going to give you some examples of how this takes place. But in the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 6 through 8, it says this. It says, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Who was who the, the beginning people we're talking about? Foreigners, right? Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So we see in, in Genesis there's this being a, a, a way in which the nations are going to be reached through this people. We see it, us reminded of this being God's heart in Isaiah. And then I want to give you three examples for you to go research. Some folks that, that were engrafted in, not because of their culture, but because of their willingness to say, I submit to who this holy God is. The first is Ruth. Check her out when you get some time. Next is a group of people. Uh, that that we, we hear about in the book of Jonah, or when, when we're studying Jonah, uh, it's the Ninevites. A whole crew that repents, a whole culture that repents. But lastly, there's a sister named Rahab. And if you look in the book of Joshua, you find that, that, that Joshua is leading his people. He's leading them across the Jordan into the promised land. And when he gets there, he's about to survey the land, and, and, and a situation happens where basically they need help or they're going to be found out and the whole plan is going to crumble. And this sister arises. As we're talking about women being celebrated, this sister arises. And not only does the sister hide them and protect them, she says these words that shows her heart, her heart's confession. She says... In, in chapter 2, verses 9 and in verse 11, I've kind of brought them together. She says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. The Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She shows her willingness to submit and see that this God is the God of all. And so she's a, a heroine. But there's a way in which this woman is celebrated. Let me tell you about her background. She, she was a doctor. No, she wasn't a doctor. She wasn't a lawyer. She wasn't a politician. She was a prostitute. A prostitute. So now, if there's any profession in which you would say the holy people shouldn't let in, that might be it. What we're seeing here is God saying, your past does not invalidate you. Will you see me as Lord? And that's all of our stories here. That is, if it's your first time here, we're not expecting you to come in perfect. Because none of us have. 
But what we do come in is say that we'll trust in a perfect God in spite of our past. And so this sister whose background is probably more jacked up than half of us in here. You know, you know where we find her name? We find her name in a genealogy. That's like a, a, a that's like your, your, your family reunion background tree. You know what I mean? Your great grandmama was this, and then grandmama was this, and then it goes down. We find her in the genealogy of Jesus. This sister who had a, who had a background that not many of us would want to touch from a culture very different than the people set apart. We find her engrafted in. And so God's plan always was to see the nations cared for. He just started with a group of people. Now, would I say that when she was engrafted in, her experience was great and she went skipping down the street and everybody selling? I don't know what her experience was. Maybe there was sin, but what was God's heart? God's heart was that every person that would submit to him would, would know that they've found a resting place. They found peace in him. And so I could go back over all of acts that we just covered as pastor led us, but we just see cultures being constantly torn down as, as we begin to wrestle with what does it mean to be the sent people of God clashed up into one new culture, which means saved by grace. Amen. Amen. I I hope that answers the the question a little bit. Um, And if not, sis, come find me. Oh, big Mike. Yeah. So was the outer court, the the area of the temple, um, was that created by man or was that created by the Lord? Um, Now, first off, let me confess, I'm not as good at answering on the spot, so bear with me. Um, But in my studies and in my understandings, it was created by the Lord. uh, But what, what, what the entire temple was to remind us of is God's beauty and his holiness. Okay? And so... Even, even Jews had sections of the temple they couldn't enter into. Everybody couldn't just go into the holies of holies. We're all constantly being reminded that there is, there is a, a, um, a way in which we bring honor to God. And that there is character traits that we need to uh, represent and that we need to uh, bring forth. And not everyone had those. And so when, when, when Christ... Um, puts down this this wall of hostility when he reminds us that that's torn down what he's saying is now in me you all have access you don't need to be the the you don't need to be the high priest in order to see ten sin atoned for you can come yourself to me and receive forgiveness and so now the the the, the playing field is leveled and none of us need to to think of what uh, uh, would inhibit us from experiencing a holy God. Oh, thank you, brother. <laughs> Amen. Any other questions? Amen. Amen. Well, family, I'm going to turn over to Pastor. And uh, can, as you guys may have questions that still, like, you don't want to raise in the entire, you know, time, uh, but please feel free to to connect with either one of us as uh, we'd love to see you equipped to be able to continue living out the gospel. Praise God. And your, uh, amen, and your elders and also Matt groups. Love when you guys are doing life and doing theology in those arenas. Uh, what we're going to do right now, I uh, hope you're just encouraged to even 
Our desire was just to provide a platform, a space for us to be able to say, man, what are some questions we have and be able to answer some of those questions, process them, uh, use it as a springboard for more discussion in your MAG groups. Uh, and also, again, the goal isn't to be smarter, but worship.